Hey everyone, it's Krista Bontrager and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go! Well, we're continuing on down the road here and this week we'll be in the Gospel of John. We'll be starting in the first chapter of the Gospel of John and going all the way through John chapter 15. From there, we'll wrap it up next week. And so let's just take a few moments to preview some of the highlights that we'll see this week as we go through John chapters 1 to 15. Now, most scholars think that the Gospel of John was written last. It was written fairly late. The church had been established and Jesus' ministry was a few decades in the rearview mirror. And so somewhere between 80 to 95 AD is when John is looking back as an old man and reflecting on the ministry of Jesus. And as we know, John is also the author of three of the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation. So he is a, a fairly prolific author and contributor to the New Testament. And really the key theme for John's gospel is that of belief. John wants to write a gospel that calls people to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it states John's purpose in writing the gospel. He's, he's writing to show that Jesus is a real historical figure and that these things really happened and that people would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. And so everything is arranged in John in such a way to call people into that belief. And he, he organizes his content a few different ways. One of the ways he does that is by using a series of I am statements. And these connect us back to the Old Testament. And we're going to talk in detail about one of those I am statements in a few minutes. But he uses this literary device of the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the living water, I am the resurrection and the life, and so on, as a, a way of, of retelling the story of Jesus. He also organizes much of his content to show and to demonstrate that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish messianic hopes. And he does that around the various festivals and celebrations of the Jewish calendar. In fact, much of the key action happens as organized in the ministry of Jesus around three different Passovers. Uh, John also mentions the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication, which is uh, what we call today Hanukkah. And so he's organizing this information to show that Jesus was a true Jew, that he was the one who came and fulfilled the messianic hopes of the, the Jewish people. The third kind of level or, or way that John organizes his gospel is that he wants to invoke a certain pathos in the reader himself that would be felt against the Jews for their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. 
John has some of the strongest claims coming out of Jesus' mouth about his divinity or his godhood that Jesus claimed to be God. And this begins right from the very first verse in the prologue. There's, there's no birth narrative or birth account in the Gospel of John. But instead, John goes back even farther than the birth of Jesus. He goes all the way back to creation itself in John chapter 1. And he wants to establish very firmly that Jesus is God and that the Jews failure to follow Jesus was really a failure to follow the one true God, the God of the Old Testament that was worshipped by their ancestors. And so there's a lot of tension in the book about who are the real Jews? Are the real Jews those who are uh, siding with the Pharisees or are the real Jews those who are siding with Jesus? Who are the ones that are truly in the line of the prophets and of Moses? And so the emotion that John wants to put in the heart of the reader is that there is a a broken heart over the failure of the people to follow and, and recognize their own Messiah. So when the Jews reject Jesus, John wants his his readers to really feel that and that they are rejecting God himself. Probably one of the most distinguishing features of the Gospel of John is that it's not a synoptic gospel. The first three gospels we looked at, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels. And sin means same, optic means eye, or same point of view. John comes at things very differently because he is writing so late. He's reflecting back on the words and the ministry of Jesus now with a few decades of experience in ministry and church growth under his belt and he's he's reflecting back he's thinking about what Jesus said and what Jesus did and seeing it from the perspective of, of an old man what we see in John's gospel is that he includes a lot of information about Jesus that simply isn't contained in the Synoptic Gospels. We don't see many of the same miracles that are repeated in Mark and Luke or Mark and Matthew or even Luke and Matthew. We see different we see different sayings, different miracles. There's not a lot of parables happening. It's just a very different vision of Jesus. It's almost as if John wants us to know certain things that the synoptic writers didn't preserve. And he's wanting to give us the rest of the story with this supplement in his gospel. So the first passage that I want to kind of highlight here as we begin our journey this week is John chapter 1, particularly verses 1 to 18. This is one of the most elegant and beautiful passages in all of scripture. One of my favorites. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. What a succinct and beautiful statement about the deity of Jesus, as well as his presence and work in creation. 
here in chapter 1, John emphasizes both the, the prehistorical and the historical aspects of Jesus as the Word, the Son of God. He begins with the creation, but then he tells us about the Word's role in creation, and then how he entered into creation itself. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son whom came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, therefore, he made his dwelling among us, points back to the Old Testament of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And so Jesus comes to tabernacle with his people to make his dwelling among them. And even though no one could see the glory of God in the Old Testament, here the glory comes and veils himself in the flesh and dwells with us. And so it's almost like this meeting of the Holy of Holies, coming to earth and kind of walking around, but veiling himself so that people can be with that glory and, and, and that holiness in that moment and, and not just die from seeing that much holiness and, and just what a gracious way it is that God has to come and make his dwelling among us. Believers in Jesus are now going to become the true children of God. And there will be this separation in John's gospel of, of division of who is going to belong to God and who is not going to belong to God, who will be the true Jews who follow Jesus. And Jesus is presented here as, as even greater than Moses who led the first Exodus. And now Jesus is, is leading his people into a new understanding of salvation and, and true Judaism. Let's also look briefly at chapter four, in particular, the count about the Samaritan woman. And the broader context here is surrounding the Feast of Passover, which began in chapter 2. And John is narrating several actions that Jesus takes that divide the world between those who believe and those who do not believe. And Jesus is setting himself up as the, the replacement for the temple. Where Where is God's presence going to dwell? It's in Jesus and so that brings us to chapter 4. He's making his way through Samaria, which would not be a normal place for Jews to be going. And not only does he go to Samaria, which would have been considered unclean, he stops to talk to a Samaritan woman. Again, someone who would, would not be considered a person that a good Jewish man would want to be talking to. I mean, in this society of an honor-shame culture, it would be very unusual for a strange man to go into a strange village and stop to talk to a woman who's by herself at a well. And one of the key points in this conversation with this Samaritan woman is the question of where does God dwell? And she says, you know, the, according to the Samaritan theology, the place of God's temple is Mount Gerizim. And according to the Jews, God's presence is in the temple in Jerusalem. But what Jesus is saying is that there will come a day when God will dwell with his people in spirit and in truth in chapter four. And this is very important because it says in verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in the spirit and in truth 
for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And so once again, Jesus is showing that there will be this this division, this new way of, of knowing and coming to the Father. It's not going to be based on a geographical location. It will be through a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And once again, he's calling people to believe in him as the Messiah. And so she says, the woman says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And this woman basically becomes one of the first evangelists, this Samaritan woman, uh, in telling her, her neighbors, and many of them believe, as we see later in the chapter. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed for two days. And because his word, because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This theme of belief is so critical to John's gospel that it is, I think, what stands behind all of the I am statements in the book of John. When when Jesus says, I am the bread of life in chapter 6, when he says, I am the living water, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, these are all just various ways of, of hearkening us back to Old Testament imagery But they're all basically saying the same thing. If you want to have life, then believe in me. I am the one who has come that you should believe in. I am the one who is empowered by the same God of that empowered the Old Testament prophets. I am that one. And if you want life, then believe in me. And it's a way of calling the Jews to believe. Now, when we get to chapter 15, it contains one of those I am statements of Jesus. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. In verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burn. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now this is a, a very difficult passage and I, I, don't, I can't really get into all of the different nuances of everything that's happening here, but I do want to suggest that when we understand this passage in context, it may not be teaching what many of us have been told that it's teaching. So much is made, first of all, about this idea of remaining in the vine. And and we've heard whole sermons about how to remain and that the, the thrust is on the remaining. I would like to suggest, however, that when this I am statement is taken in the broader context of the whole list of I am statements, they're all saying the same thing. It's a call to believing in Jesus as the Messiah. 
that a true Jew is someone who attaches themselves to Jesus. In the Old Testament, the vine was Israel. And we saw that back when we were studying the prophets. We did an entire segment, one of the podcasts, about how Israel was the vine of God and how it was an unfaithful vine. Well, now we get to Jesus and it says that he is what? He is the true vine, which I think is an allusion to those Old Testament prophets who talked about Israel being an unfaithful vine or an untruthful vine. And Jesus is now saying, I am the vine. So if you want to be attached to God the Father, you need to be attached to me. I am the true vine. No longer is Israel the way to get to the Father. It's now through Jesus. And he's talking of a time, a unique time in history, during the life of Jesus, when it was transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, when it was transitioning from Israel as being the access point to God to being Jesus. And so he's saying he's going to cut off every branch in me that bears no fruit. What is he talking about there? I think he's talking about Jews who who don't really get attached to him as the true vine. These are like the people, the onlookers, the crowds, as Matthew called them. They were the people who would follow Jesus on the street, but then they would turn away very easily. Uh, earlier, you're going to see that in John chapter 6, uh, where that happens. And so he's going to, the father's going to prune those people. He the father's going to cut those branches off, but a true branch he's going to prune so that it'll be even more faithful. And he's telling the disciples, you are already clean because of the word that I spoke to you. In other words, you're already attached to me because you have been following me and you've been, you've been listening to my teachings and, and you are already in me. And he's saying, remain in me, keep going as you are, and I will remain in you. So the emphasis isn't so much on what is the key to remaining The real focus should be on making sure that if you want to access God, you're going through Jesus. But unfortunately, we have gotten so hung up over the English translation of the word remain, and we've tried to make that into some kind of devotional experiment of how do I remain, and what do I need to do to remain, and what's the formula to help me remain, and what are some principles to facilitate my remaining in, in the vine, totally misses the point. What Jesus is saying here is that if you want to be truly attached to the one true God, you're going to need to attach yourself to me. Believe in me. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the true living water and I am the true vine of God. Well, those are some things to look for as you journey through the Gospel of John this week. It'll be fairly easy reading. This is often a a book that we recommend to new Christians when they're just starting out in their Christian walk. The Gospel of John is one that's fairly easy to understand, fairly universal in its language, 
And so it should be some of the easiest reading you've had all year, maybe since the book of Genesis. I don't know. But it's it's going to be good. I know you'll be blessed. And be sure to share the podcast with a friend. It's not too late in the year to do that. This is a great resource. We've still got some miles to go before the end of our journey. So feel free to spread the word. And I hope you have a good week. And we will continue in the book of John next week and then get started in the book of Acts. Learn about the early church and and Pentecost and all that fun stuff. So we've got a lot to look forward to next week. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. God bless.